The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. You know, we spent sort of um, 40 years looking at the 1970s saying, oh, my God, how did these guys make such a big mess of it? Well, this would have been even worse because this would have been, well, how did they make such a big mess of it again? Because in the 1970s, there was no template for the 1970s. You know, we have that template today. Central banks have made a lot of mistakes in the past few years. In this exchange, I sit down with Dario Perkins and Davide Onelia, two economists at TS Lombard, to discuss why that happened and how policymakers can do better in the future. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Francesco Guerrera, Global Economics Editor at Breaking Views. Today I'm in London, chatting to two economists, Dario Perkins, Managing Director Global Macro at TS Lombard, and his colleague Davide Onelia, Director European Macro. They explain why Western central banks missed the unusual nature of the last economic cycle, what sets the Federal Reserve and the European Central Bank apart, and how they can both avoid repeating Richard's mistakes. Thank you for being with us, Davide and Dario. Good to be here. Our pleasure. Thank you. I want to start from the type of economic cycle we are living in and uh, and the response by central banks. You've both written eloquently that this is a slightly different cycle from the past for obvious reasons. So I wonder whether you can expand a little bit on that and also talk a little bit about the policy response that we witnessed and we're about to witness, given that this is a different economic cycle. Maybe, Dario, you want to start and then we're going to David. Yeah, I mean, I've become a bit of a cliche on this. You know, for the last two years, uh, the number one client question has been, where are we in this cycle? And my response has always been the same. You know, this isn't a cycle. This was never a normal economic cycle. You know, we we shut down the economy. We reopened the economy. We put in a huge amount of largely one-off fiscal stimulus. We had these big rotations in spending, you know, first into goods and then into services. And it created this sort of bizarro macro world. And I think one of the big mistakes that um, sort of consensus economics has been making is to look at this, look at that combination that we had a very high inflation and um, you know, very low unemployment and conclude from that that this was some sort of late cycle, normal business cycle. And the big mistake from that was that you needed to have a recession in order to get inflation back down. But actually, what we really had was just this enormous cost shock. And it went through the goods sector and the manufacturing sector. And then it went through the service sector. And the problem is that central banks just overreacted to that, you know, particularly in 2022, when they saw this broadening of inflationary pressures. And they started to sort of freak out that this was just like the 1970s all over again, that they were losing control of inflation, that inflation expectations were going to go up, that the Phillips curve had shifted outwards. And then they got into this sort of this, this sort of mode where they were just sort of protecting their own reputations. So they became convinced that they would go down in history as some sort of you know, example of monetary failure. And it would be even worse than the 1970s. You know, we spent sort of um, 40 years looking at the 1970s saying, oh, my God, how did these guys make such a big mess of it? Well, this would have been even worse because this would have been, well, how did they make such a big mess of it again? Because in the 1970s, there was no template for the 1970s. You know, we have that template today. So central banks became very, very aggressive. And so you've had you know, while you've, while you've had this sort of fake business cycle, you've had this very real tightening in monetary policy. And so for me, the sort of recession risk was always at this question of whether central banks would get whipsawed because you had the fake business cycle and then you had this sort of very aggressive, uh, exaggerated response from central bankers. And so now we've got to the other side of this. Inflation is coming down. We've got that immaculate disinflation, which 
originally, you know, it was called that as a sort of joke, you know, people taking the mickey out of the idea that inflation could come down without higher unemployment. Well, now that's what we're seeing. You know, we've got this immaculate disinflation. And now we're left with the sort of final part of this fake business cycle, which is when will central banks wake up and realise that they went too far and they need to start to reverse that. And I think that's a much bigger risk in Europe than it is in the US right now. Yeah, so I was asking, I want to ask David, who is an expert on Europe, about this, right? Given what Dari is saying, all the vibes we were getting from the European Central Bank is that there's no rush. No rush to cut rates. They want to see other stuff. You know, they, they talk about wage growth, they talk about inflation expectations. So is there a danger that they, by doing that, they over they keep um, monetary policy too tight and indeed it caused the recession that they were expressing trying to avoid? Yeah, I think so. I mean, actually, we've been thinking that uh, ever since they they overdid it, uh, I think, last summer. Probably the September hike was one hike too many, uh, as the you know DCB tends to be late to the party and then overdo it uh, much more than other central banks. And uh, in a sense, now the DCB has already been... Uh, whipsawed, as Dario was saying, by the by the decline, the steep decline in uh, in inflation in autumn, and the the increasing number of uh, downside surprises to inflation that, um, to some extent, you know, now are slowing down because uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was hard to conceive them continue at the same pace, but uh, uh, we still expect to continue, right? This inflation is not over at all, and uh, so in a sense, yes, the ECB is much more exposed, and the noise that it ca- that is coming from there even even recently, uh, with some governors uh, uh, suggesting this, you know, cuts might not even come this year, uh, like Holtzman, for example, uh, you know, the Archox, etc. And the debate that is emerging between the gradualists that would like a more gradual approach to to interest rate cuts and uh, and people that actually are advocating sticking, you know, to higher rates for longer is quite is quite uh, discomforting, I think, from the perspective of the European economics in general. Uh, also, because if you look at the actual level of rates, and uh, if you think about the uh, the cycle in general, uh, real rates are still very high. Uh, most and real rates are once you discount for inflation, right? So you, you actually look not at the nominal level rates, but, but you, because inflation is coming down, rates are staying high. So the real rates are very high. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Especially, especially inflation expectations have been coming down quite a lot. So that has been ma- probably the major driver of nominal yields coming down since last November in uh, in Europe, especially, which has kept real rates actually pretty pretty steep, especially at the at the short end of the curve, which is which is which is real tightening. So, uh, in fact, if you look at it, you know, if you look at any estimate or any reasonable estimate of where a neutral rate could be, assuming you can effectively rely on this concept, but you know, just theoretically, uh, even if they were to cut 100 basis points, they will still remain probably 50 uh, or more basis points above this neutral rate. So even if they were to comply with market expectations, they will still be very, very tight by the end of this year. Yeah, and the neutral rate for the listener who don't know is the mythical uh, place where the rates uh, are perfect, in perfect equilibrium, right? And nobody quite knows where they are. So what what is your policy prescription for them then? You think they should cut as soon as possible and and continue to cut or what's your your prediction? Um, for the ECB specifically, I mean, uh, we uh, we were joking with Dario that probably they should have cut yesterday, or they should, well, you know, but basically they shouldn't have hiked in September, and they should have cut, you know, even uh, before then. But um, yeah, now I our our forecast is that they're going to uh, they're going to cut in June. 
there was like this uh, probability that they might have cut earlier, but with, uh, with what's happening uh, in the U.S., uh, especially, uh, they are very you know they're very careful about what's going on on the other side of the Atlantic, regardless of whether they say that or not. Some governors are more open to the idea that effectively the DCB is uh, following the Fed. Uh, than others, so uh, the the probability of earlier cuts is very low now, and uh, and the question will be about whether uh, now they get enough data in their opinion to speed up the process of cutting later on. So after June, if the cuts are going to be uh, faster or not, uh, you know, one one every meeting or one every other meeting or even you know fifty basis point cuts is something you know some uh, some governors might might be considered. The 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 sense by the way is that the 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 framework through which uh, the ECB is looking at is looking at inflation and uh, uh, and the tightening labor market is quite uh, off uh, or uh, there is no framework Davide. there's no framework yeah thank you very much okay there is no framework okay <laughs> so yeah this is quite a pet peeve of me I mean that's that's the difference isn't it I mean that's the difference know, yeah that's the main difference with the Fed you know yeah so what is it? Unpack that a little bit because uh, try, try to explain like what do you see as the main difference? Yeah, I mean, well, the Fed, the Fed has had a very clear, you know, idea about what it was trying to achieve over the last couple of years. You know, it said that, yes, a big part of inflation is transitory, even if we don't want to use that word anymore. But there's this fundamental imbalance in the labor market. You know, labor supply went down. Labor demand has gone up a lot. So they've been trying to rebalance that labor market because they were worried that that was the sort of source of potential medium term overheating. Now, where is the overheating in Europe? There's been no overheating. You know, the, the, the Europeans, they took an economy that started out much weaker than the US. There was no consumer boom. There's been no consumer boom in Europe over the last three years. And then they engineered a much bigger monetary tightening than anything the Fed has done, mainly because you have lots of variable rate mortgages, a lot of variable rate corporate debt. So they've taken that weaker economy and they've engineered this much bigger monetary squeeze and they've gone too far. And so now the question is, you know, how quickly do they need to reverse course? And they're still looking at this sort of worry about the 1970s, which is that this this sort of concern that if they cut interest rates too quickly, the inflation will come back. So the mistake they've made over the last two years, you know, in believing this in this sort of Phillips curve framework, they are still making today. You know, they still think that if they ease interest rates, the inflation will come back, which is just a complete misreading of where the inflation came from in the first place. And it's even a misreading of what happened in the 1970s, because the 1970s was never about central banks easing policy too quickly. It was about a very different type of labor market to the one that we have today. So they're not going to get those those sort of wage price spirals. And now they're just, you know, in danger of making this new policy error, which is, you know, having gone too quickly, raised rates too far, they're now, you know, reluctant to cut when it's patently obvious that they should have already started to cut. Right. Yeah. And I would say that um, also from like a historical standpoint in terms of uh, in terms of, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the, the whole um, wage cycle and labor market conditions, we have, we've just come out of a decade after the global financial crisis where wage growth was extremely low, was very depressed. Uh, and uh, now we are just seeing like sort of rebound in the labor market that would be consistent with a, what we call uh, a higher pressure economy that, uh, you know, there are many reasons to believe that is conducive to higher productivity, not lower productivity. So in a sense, uh, this reveals the structural uh, supply sort of pessimism that uh, the European policymakers are sort of steeped in. 
and this is like you know something that Daria and I have been discussing a lot, and uh, it seems to be much more relevant for Europe than it is for the U.S., where effectively Powell has acknowledged the uh, the uh, you know the re- some some rebounding productivity uh, and uh, and a f- some sort of a new economy that is emerging. Yeah, Powell, I mean, Powell can see that, that he can be the hero here. You know, they can they can say, well, if we hadn't have been so aggressive in raising interest rates, we would have had the 1970s. We prevented that. And now we've done that without even having a recession. So he becomes this sort of maestro of US monetary policy, delivers the soft landing. It would be, you know, the finest moment in the history of the Fed. Whereas the Europeans are still worrying about making new mistakes, about easing policy too quickly. And I think it does come down to what Davide said about supply pessimism. You know, you can see in the US that productivity is improving, that the labor force is growing again. I think, you know, Powell's even said, even if growth is, you know, coming back, that's not a reason not to cut interest rates. Whereas the Europeans are still worrying about all these nasty things that could happen in the the 2020s and reasons why inflation might come back and reasons why inflation expectations might be fragile. And, you know, there's a sort of philosophical difference right now. You know, the Europeans are in this sort of covering mode and the the US is in this sort of, well, we can embrace this soft landing and go down in history as heroes. So very different approach. Very interesting. And very different approaches, as you said. I just want to switch uh, um, subjects for a second and talk a little bit about, there's been a lot of talk about deglobalization or uh, stalling the growth of world trade. Do you see that as a, a as a trend, as a permanent phenomenon? Do you see it reversing? Does it matter to economic growth? I mean, what's your stance on, on all that talk? Yeah, I mean, I think this started before COVID. Um, you know, we were beginning to see uh, the trade wars. We were beginning to see this sort of fracturing of the global economy. It was a big theme for us in sort of 2018, 2019. And then I think, you know, the events of the last three years have sort of accelerated that process. You know, we have, we've realized that supply chains that are long and complex are inherently vulnerable. That's created a private incentive for businesses to start to, you know, think about changing those supply chains and shortening those. And then overlaying that, you have the geopolitics of the last three years, which is, you know, the tensions between the US and China have grown. You have the tensions between Europe and Russia, which are obviously very acute now. And so you have this sort of new Cold War dynamic. So right now you have the private incentive and this sort of government initiative. So I think we're seeing that, you know, we're seeing it in sort of bilateral trade positions. We're seeing it in FDI, you know, FDI in China has basically collapsed as far as I can see. Uh, We're seeing it with um, sort of strategic resources, you know, this sort of competition for various types of resources. But the big thing is that industrial policy has come back. You know, we're seeing Bidenomics in the US, this rebuilding of manufacturing in the US. We're seeing it very aggressively from China in the EV industry. And so Europe is basically caught between this because it can see that industrial policy is working in the US. It can see that its car industry is getting destroyed by China right now. And so there has to be a European response to that. So we've got this sort of tit for tat, you know, protectionism and, um, uh, you know, tax wars that are just going to sort of give you this next leg. So I think deglobalization is very real. And I think it's, you know, gathering pace. So, David, I mean, Dario points out the, the difficulties Europe is, is in because of this. I mean, I do have some sympathy for that because Europe has doesn't have the fiscal resources that the U.S. has. The U.S. just threw $3 trillion uh, at the problem and uh, didn't 
survive to tell the tale, so to speak. Um, how can Europe respond, uh, or can Europe respond to such a to, to such a situation? Right. I mean, I think that that's the crucial problem, right? And uh, well, it's uh, it's partly legacy because Europe has always been uh, over the past couple of decades, at least, very intertwined with the Chinese economy, especially. So pivoting away from it is very is very complicated. Uh, I think we've seen uh, and we are seeing some uh, efforts from the uh, capital uh, capital goods industry, for example, manufacturing in general, to pivot away from China and concentrate on the U.S. Uh, this, I think, is quite is quite visible in trade data and in bilateral bilateral trade data. Basically, the exports to the U.S. have grown almost to to, to a similar proportion to the, the the decline or the stagnation in Chinese in Chinese exports, and uh, that makes sense. But of course, of course, you, then you have to put in the wild card of Trump. So that uh, if if uh, Trump were to complicate this process, it would be even harder for Europe to disentangle itself from uh, from Chinese ties. And uh, and so there's there's some legacy problem that relates to inertia, especially by German uh, by the German industrial complex that you know to some extent can be can be seen as uh, uh, as uh, as uh, as delaying this uh, repatriation or reshoring process. On the other hand, you have the fiscal uh, you have the fiscal uh, you know the, f- the fiscal uh, power is not that is not there yet, but frankly, uh, I think uh, it's like it's like a it's like a physics law. It's very hard to it's very hard to stop uh, these uh, big uh, structural trends uh, in the way while they're while they're gathering momentum, and, and that's why you know I agree with Dario that these trends are going to last, and and so Europe will need to do something, and uh, maybe uh, you know a, a question would be if, you know. If Trump could actually be the crisis that uh, that Europe needs to uh, to face these problems and uh, and uh, and move towards a more structural change in that direction, they've done something with the with the next generation EU fund. They've effectively moved that direction in terms of uh, centralized spending, and they're probably going to do something similar with military spending. And the protectionism is rising as well. Uh, especially in the car industry, but it's a, it's a sort of slow moving process because you know Europe is very slow moving. So there's many many actors uh, having competing uh, competing interests uh, also within the within the union. If you think about the stance of, for example, the German car manufacturers versus French car manufacturers, you know, so the French are of course less exposed to China than the Germans are, so they're less afraid of of uh, of putting barriers to chinese evs that they would not feel uh, retaliation if it came but um, you think the europe should borrow more i mean at a, at a at a at a common level at a supranational level it should it should it should build it should build a, a bigger more a bigger and permanent and more serious central fiscal capacity i don't think there's much uh, there's much uh, there's much of an alternative to that i mean especially after the, the the new fiscal rules have been approved if you know if they were to be followed by the letter uh, they would imply after after a couple of years so admittedly not in the short term but uh, maybe after 2027 they would imply a retrenchment in terms of uh, uh, primary primary budget balance that uh, would be comparable to the worst years of austerity so certainly we don't want to repeat that experiment we know how it went yeah yeah and in the little time we've got left i wanted to ask you both to kind of have a forward looking stance and and think about Given this episode we just witnessed uh, in central banking history, what what are the lessons that central bankers can learn and, and apply to the next cycle as we enter the next cycle to avoid the mistakes of this cycle? Uh, maybe Dario and start. I mean, it's it's tricky because um, you know a big part of this cycle has been sort of fake, and um, uh, you don't want to 
to draw too strong a lessons from it. Um, a lot of weird stuff has been happening. But um, for me, the obvious one is stop using the Phillips curve. You know, I mean, I've been a professional economist since the late 90s. There's been no point in my career where the Phillips curve has been helpful. And if anything, it's led to a series of policy errors. Um, so they need to stop worrying about the Phillips curve. So the Phillips curve is this uh, is this economic concept where, which uh, postulates a, a trade-off between unemployment and inflation, right? That's just to to clarify. And it's been used a lot. Yeah, it's it's a it's a central tenor of central banking policy making. Yeah, sorry, carry on. Yeah, exactly. It's the whole basis of central banking policy. Um, you know, they particularly the Fed because it has a dual mandate. It has to believe that there's some relationship between unemployment and inflation, um, but that relationship is shall we say, fuzzy at best. Um, the other thing is to stop worrying about the 1970s. You know, the 1970s was a really unique period in history. We had this very different economy to the one that we had before, uh, this post-World War II economy where you had very powerful labour, uh, very powerful capital. And then you had this big uh, slowdown in structural productivity that started in the 1960s. And the 1970s was basically a conflict between labour and capital about who should bear the burden of that. And so you did have this sort of very aggressive wage price spiral. We couldn't generate that today if we tried. And so, you know, to keep thinking that we're just going to jump back into the 1970s is just a complete misreading of history. You know, you're not going to be able to sort of reverse 40 years of neoliberalism just with a one-off fiscal stimulus. So it's a bizarre way to, to think about the world. Um, but, you know, central banks like to take credit for the fact that they got inflation down after the 1970s, although we can debate whether it had anything to do with monetary policy. And so they always have this belief that, you know, they're the ones that decide where inflation goes. So it's going to be kind of hard to break that belief, I think. David, what do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree with Dari. I mean, as you can imagine, <laughs> the, the the view is quite, it's quite similar here. But um, yeah, also, I think uh, going beyond central banks, uh, I think like the 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 past year, the past couple of years also proved that uh, fiscal policy is very potent and uh, and fiscal monetary coordination is also very potent. And uh, now, uh, if you look at Europe, we are in a, in a moment in which both fiscal and monetary policy are pulling the same direction, which is down, uh, certainly is going to have an impact. So um, uh, the other lesson I think we will need, we will learn as a, or we, we could have learned uh, as a, as a, uh, as market observers, as economists, is uh, uh, that um, maybe something something structural has changed in the policy mix, and the policy mix is important. Uh, so, if in the 2010s you had this uh, uh, very tight fiscal policy and very loose monetary policy, but to no avail, uh, now we could uh, we could reemerge into we could emerge into a new into a new world that is very similar to the world that, that existed before, uh, maybe or not that different from the world that existed before the global financial crisis, in which uh, you effectively have a, a healthier balance between these two forces, and uh, and that can foster the famous productivity maybe that uh, had seemed to have gone away over the past fifteen years or so. But in this respect, I think it's also important to to say that maybe we should also inquire more about uh, the supply side of the economy, you know, because because. It, 
policymakers are so afraid of the supply side uh, being permanently damaged, for example, in Europe. And you should think about whether the supply is also going, you know, fluctuating like demand is in, in cycles that can be affected by policy. So let's suppose, for example, that uh, ECB policy is too tight for too long and, and fiscal policy is too tight for too long then uh, um, that could affect supply as well, could impede the rebuilding of a supply that then effectively uh, helps inflation come down. Well, on, the, on that note, unfortunately, we have to leave it there. But thank you so much for being with us. A fascinating conversation. Thank you both. Thanks for having us on. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Oliver Tashlish in London. Subscribe to The Exchange and our sister podcast, The Views Room, on Megaphone, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. Catch up with our latest views and much more on breakingviews.com and on X, where our handle is at breakingviews. I'm Kim Vanell. Join me every morning for a roundup of what's happening at home and around the world. From the front line in Ukraine. Extraordinary how these people adjust and uh, even laugh when you take cover. To the heart of U.S. politics. When Trump said that he expected to be arrested, it seems like he was trying to get ahead of the story. We bring you everything you need to know in 10 minutes. For your essential daily briefing, follow Reuters World News wherever you get your podcasts. Podcasts.